out loud. All right. Some of you have to think. Some of you can't think back that far. Okay. Well, we're in Acts chapter 16. And Jared told us last week that there were three very important reasons why the letter was sent from uh, James and, and the apostles to all of the Gentile churches. They, they call it the Jerusalem Decree. And these decrees were given to the Gentile church, which would be us, by the way, for these three reasons. Let's go over them quickly. First of all, unity in the church. Now, at that time, unity between the Jewish and Gentile believers was really important. And so we're to live by the law of love. I I enjoyed hearing that from Jared uh, last week. Secondly is purity in the church. The Gentiles were raised from childhood in a culture that rejected biblical purity, kind of like our society is doing today. And the letter tells all believers to abstain from sexual immorality. And then the third reason is our witness. Uh, There are unsaved Jews scattered throughout the Roman Empire who need the message of salvation of Jesus. Well, this brings us to my first major idea on the back of the bulletin, if you have your pencil. If the gospel is going to reach these lost souls or lost souls today, The church must reach out to them in appropriate ways that don't begin by offending. The law of love applies to our witness as well as our unity. Now, I should point out one more time that these four decrees, they are for our unity, our purity, and our witness, but they're not for our salvation. You see, we're saved by the grace of God, unearned, unmerited, and I like this with no strings attached. Verse 5 of chapter 16, where I want you to turn in your Bibles now, only concludes the delivery of the Jerusalem. Not only does that, but it, um, it sends us forward into a new uncharted territory. Let's read that verse. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and increased in number daily. The letter from, the, from Jerusalem, it brought clarity and unity to these churches. They were unified, and they were strengthened, and they increased in number as the community around them were drawn to the grace of God, to the gospel, by the love and the acceptance that these two diverse cultures demonstrated for each other. This is my second point I want you to look at in the bulletin. The church, the body of Christ, should be a place in our community here in Willows where our faith in Jesus brings us together and gives us love and unity beyond the issue of of culture or the age groups or social diversity so that our friends and neighbors can see Jesus. Open Gate should be known as a refuge, a place of safety and of acceptance. Now this morning we're picking up the story of Paul's second missionary journey. As we look at the map, 
I just love maps because I like to see things. I'm kind of a visual learner. As we look at the map, you can visualize what verse 6 is saying as we read it. Now, when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. Now, this isn't the continent of Asia. It's this Roman province of Asia found where uh, we see Turkey, modern, the modern-day Turkey today. Well, let's look at the map and see how Paul's journey veers or swerves north to skirt around the edge of Asia. So, so what's happening here? Why snub or give the cold shoulder to this entire region? What is God the Holy Spirit thinking? And I'll let you know, he doesn't always tell us. All Luke discloses at this time is they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. Do you often ask God for the reason why? Well, I, here's my idea. Every time you try, you do this, you are trying to outthink God. Every time we ask why, we're trying to have the mind of God ourselves And I think we're looking for answers that are way above our pay grade. The scripture tells us, Isaiah says it in chapter 55, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Many times, most times, our faith and obedience must be grounded not on our complete understanding, but upon God's person, who God is, and his faithfulness in the past. Why does God bypass this region of Asia? Are these people to be neglected or overlooked? Well, we know that at some point the gospel was preached throughout that entire region with great results. All seven of the churches in the book of Revelation are located in this small region of Asia. So God sees the big picture. Maybe the timing isn't right. Perhaps there's another missionary like like Peter who's a, a better fit for these people. Maybe Paul is late for a scheduled divine appointment in in Philippi. The Lord's timing is always perfect. That's my promise to you. Remember Philip in the middle of a Samaritan revival? We studied about that a few weeks ago. He was led by an angel to lead the crowds and go to a deserted place southwest of the big city at that time of Jerusalem. We read it here in in uh, Acts. Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. It actually goes into kind of a desert area. Well, perfect timing takes place. He finds the right road, the right chariot, the man's reading the right Old Testament passage, and he has the right results. Because of Philip's swift obedience, the gospel reaches out to the entire continent of Africa through this Ethiopian uh, official. 
sometime go back and reread this wonderful story of evangelism and God's grace. This is my third point in our bulletin. The Lord doesn't always make his timing or his purpose that clear to us in every situation. But like Philip and here with Paul, we can rest in God's guiding and his timing. After they had come to uh, Mycenae, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the spirit, and actually in the, in the original, it's the spirit of Jesus did not permit them. Paul <clears throat> is traveling west. He turns south toward Asia, and the Holy Spirit says, no, don't go. He turns north toward Bithynia, and the Spirit says, again, no. Now, we're not told how the Holy Spirit reveals his will. Perhaps it was an angel, like with Philip, or in one or more instance, Silas might have had a part, for he was a prophet. Remember, Luke tells us in chapter 15, verse 32, Judas and Silas themselves, being prophets also, exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. So it could have been a dream. And in verse 9, we find that Paul has a night vision. So verse 8, So passing by Mycenae, they came down to Troas. So Luke is pretty clear that they don't stop and preach the word because they pass by Mycenae, uh, headed for the city of Troas. Now Troas was what we might call the great way, uh, the gateway to the rest. Uh, travelers, as they traveled along the Roman roads, uh, they would go to uh, Troas and then take a ship across the, the, the Adriatic Sea there. Verse 9, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. So Paul is pointed in the direction he's to travel. Only this time it's a Macedonian man calling to Paul for help. These visions and dreams seem pretty miraculous, but we live in a time now where God's will has been revealed to us in his word. I like what John Corson, he's uh, a church pastor in Oregon, he has this to say about dreams and visions. He says, as a pastor, I sometimes get frustrated with people who want to know God's will but won't come to Bible study. If they had to choose between the word, if I had to choose between the word and a vision, I'd take the word at every time. Verse 10. Now, after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, including concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Do you see the pronoun in verse 10? Suddenly, Luke starts writing in the first person. He now says, we sought to go to Macedonia. We think that Dr. Luke joins Paul here at Troas, and perhaps he was there to treat him for his illness. The Lord has been leading by the negative the last two times Paul's trying to move forward with the gospel. He said no to Mycenae, the direction directly west, and then he said no to Bithynia, to the north. So Paul keeps moving forward 
to Troas. My fourth point in the back of the bulletin. Don't overlook this vital lesson. God doesn't choose one door without opening another. He, uh, we may have to wait or be open to change, but God is always faithful to lead us. We've got a great example of that here uh, at Open Gate. It was the same week after almost two years that the Lord told Jared and Laura no as they were trying to establish a church in Erie, Pennsylvania. Now, without any communication between Lee uh, and Jared, in fact, Lee was holding off because he didn't want to interrupt what God was trying to do there in Erie. He just probably didn't want to go there himself. (laughs) But uh, leave Jared there if, if that's what you're planning, Lord. But he finally, he came to me and he said, what would you think? I'm ready to really start retiring around here. He said, what would you think if I called your grandson and asked him to come to Willows? And I said, well, that's totally news to me, but it's pretty good news. Well, Dr. Gabeline, one of my favorite Bible teachers, gives an interesting insight into how God leads and how the Holy Spirit is working. He says this, the church is beginning to understand the Trinity. I think this is really an interesting point. He says the heightening of terminology in verses 6 through 10, where first he says the Holy Spirit, verse 6, to the Spirit of Jesus, verse 7, to God or the Lord, in verse 10, is not just stylistic, but it's, and he calls it an unconscious expression. As Luke writes, he's being inspired from within by the Holy Spirit of the early church's embryonic Trinitarian faith. All three terms refer to God by his Spirit giving direction to the mission. You see, God the Trinity is here to guide us, to lead us, to comfort us, to direct us, to save us. That's the God we worship. That's the God of the Bible. So Luke is inspired by the Spirit to reveal each person of the Trinity, where he writes that Paul was led by the Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of Jesus, and ultimately the Spirit of God, the Lord. Verse 11, Therefore, sailing from Troas, he ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day came to Neapolis. Now, I've got a map again because it shows the stopover for the night on this small island of Samothrace, then across the rest of the Aegean Sea to the coastal town of Neapolis. And verse 12, And from there, to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in the city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside, where prayer was customarily made, and we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Well, Paul doesn't stop to preach until he gets to Philippi, It's an important Roman colony. 
in, in the uh, B.C. 31, 31 years before Christ, many Roman army veterans were settled in different communities, and they were settled here at Philippi, and it was then designated as a Roman colony responsible directly to the emperor and his laws. So Paul looks for a synagogue to preach, and there's not one there. He only finds a Jewish prayer center. Perhaps it's just a, an open air or a simple building by the river that's about a mile or a mile and a half west of the city. You see, without ten religious Jewish, male, Jewish males, they couldn't form a synagogue. I think this just tells us that the Jewish community was pretty small here in Philippi. And Paul only finds a group of women. I think he's surprised because who did he have in his dream asking him to come and help out? It was the Macedonian man. Well, some Bible teachers have seen the irony in this statement. This is not me talking. It's a quote. Paul opened his, his European ministry by attending a ladies' prayer meeting. Now, this actually has application to us here. My fifth point on the bulletin. Many times the Lord calls us to serve him, but it isn't always exactly what we expected. A detailed, crystal clear calling is the exception, not the norm. As a Christian, Paul had to put aside his Jewish patriarchal attitudes. In Christ, we are all one. Verse 14. Now a certain woman named Lydia, she heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. Well, she was a salesperson. Lydia, she's a deeply devout Jewish, a Jewess with an open heart for God's Spirit. So what does God do? He opens her heart to Jesus. She's successful as a, as a businesswoman. Her house is large enough that she can invite all of the, Paul's band of travelers to stay there. I think Paul is still using the riverside when we get to uh, for prayer and, and evangelism when we get to verse 16. Because uh, Luke says, Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us who brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. Well, this girl is the real thing. By her fortune telling, she's earned her masters an excellent living, yet no one cared about this Poor girl, trapped and controlled by demons. You see, Satan is always at hand to oppose the work of God. And in this case, he's using this poor young slave girl. Verse 17. This girl followed Paul and us. See, Luke is still there. And she cried out saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us Gentiles, the way of salvation. 
Well, this demon-inspired message was free publicity, and it helped gather an audience together. At first, it was good for everyone. You see, more people meant more sales for her masters. Verse 18 says, She did this for many days, but Paul greatly annoyed. Don't you love that? He's just human. He's annoyed by this. He's not like some spiritual giant like we think he is. He's like us. He doesn't have this spiritual reason. He's annoyed. Okay? So he turned and he said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. Now, I think Luke is implying that Paul's motive wasn't so much spiritual as frustration. She had become a total nuisance. In the name of Jesus, though, the demon left her. And I agree with many Bible students who say at that point, when she'd been delivered by the power of God, she became a young Christian and now a part of the Philippian church. Verse 19. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. Well, I have to stop here. I had to, my great-grandson, Silas, I told him, I'm talking about you this morning, but I'm going to make sure everybody knows that actually it's not you. It's another Silas in the Bible that gets thrown into jail. He goes, oh, good. He didn't want a you know, bad reputation coming out of the children's ministry this morning. Okay, so uh, it says here that they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them, not us, but them, into the marketplace to the authorities. So Luke must have held back, or maybe, maybe he blended more into the crowd because he's only, at this, from this point on, referring to, to them, not us. Verse 20, And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city. Well, they pull the prejudice card. These Jews. The anti-Semitism will help escalate the religious infractions. And they, they go on, They teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. Remember, this is a colony. They report directly to the emperor and his edicts. And so Rome permitted people uh, of their colonies to worship whatever god they wanted to, but they did not stand for proselyting Roman citizens. So I think this claim becomes more of a flagrant infraction of imperial Roman law. Verse 22. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes, that's Paul and Silas, and commanded them to be beaten with rods. Now, Jewish law is 39 stripes, but Roman law is brutal. It it depends on how angry the magistrate is. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. 
having received such a charge, this jailer, he puts them into the inner prison and he fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, the inner prison is most likely a dungeon. Earthy, dank, cold and moist, and dark. Now, their escape would be on his head. That's Roman law, and that wasn't going to happen to him. Verse 25. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Well, here's our sixth point in the back of the bulletin there. Rather than sulk, what do they do? They sing. Rather than whine, they worship. And after being beaten within an inch of their lives, they still praise God. Spurgeon, the great preacher of England, wrote, Songs in the night come only from God. They are not the power of men. I admit I may be the only one here, but when trouble comes, I usually sulk, whine, and gripe. But the Lord is demonstrating a much, much better way to deal here with our troubles. He wants us to sing, worship, and praise. I want to try it the next time struggles and worries assault me, don't you? So what are they singing? Well, I think they're singing Old Testament psalms. Back uh, in the 60s and 70s, when, when the Jesus people were coming on the scene, some of the songs in our college group, especially, we would take right out of the psalms and sing them in our, in our youth group. Uh, probably newly written hymns about their faith in Jesus. Luke tells us, the prisoners were listening to them. This is our last point I want you to apply to yourself here uh, that's in the bulletin. This is a fundamental truth about our faith. You are a witness of the indwelling Spirit of Jesus no matter where we are or what we're doing. Many of us tend to be secret believers but most often, something we say or do or our kids let it slip, it gets out. And isn't it true, whether we're living for Jesus or not, you and I are witnesses for good or bad. So let me ask all of us here this morning, who is watching or listening to you or me today? Some of you tease me about my office down at Starbucks. I, I had trouble sitting outside my office for a year and a half. But um, I've had at least two people come up to me at my office after we started talking and I told them a little bit about myself that gave me the names specifically of people that they watched who they knew came to Open Gate. And it was a testimony to our church. Verse 26. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all of the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were loosed. Well, now an earthquake can spring open old heavy doors, but loosen or open chains isn't so likely unless 
It's sent directly by God. And the prisoners are free. Everyone is freed. Verse 27, the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Well, the jeweler, the, the jailer knows the rules. Under Roman law, the one in charge takes on the sentences of any and every escaped prisoner. Verse 28, Paul called out with a loud voice saying, Do yourself no harm, we're all here. Well, Paul knows the score too. Before the jailer can react to his predicament, Paul cries out, We're all here. Do yourself no harm. All here, present, and accounted for. Then he, the jailer, called for a light, ran in and fell down, trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Well, that's interesting that that's the question he asked. Well, first of all, the earthquake, I guess, shook him up as well. But I think we learned two things from his statement. I think from the moment the chains were clamped shut, Paul and Silas had been sharing the good news about Jesus. These fellow prisoners were captives of sin long before they were Paul and Silas's cellmates. God used their prison experience to open their eyes to their need for salvation. Why are they still here? They want to stay and hear more. It's interesting because that's what happened to a friend of mine called Ron back in 1964. <laughs> Where were you in 64? I was a senior at Biola. I was going to school full time, married with a nine-month-old daughter, holding down a job at the warehouse at Sears and doing part-time youth ministry in Fullerton. I was younger then, okay? Well, Ron worked with me most evenings at the car pickup exit to the warehouse. Shoppers brought their receipts and we gave them their merchandise. Often we were tying it on the top of their car or loading it uh, in, their, in their trucks. You can tie a 40-gallon boxed water heater on the top of a 1961 Volkswagen. I can promise it got out of the parking lot. Uh, King-size box springs are easier. During dinner and during breaks, I would witness to Ron and tell him about Jesus. Behind my back, he was laughing at me. He didn't need Jesus. He was doing quite well, thank you, until he got caught for stealing thousands of dollars worth of TVs, stereos, and water heaters. His friends would bring false invoices. Ron would order the merchandise up from the warehouse, help them put it in their vehicle, and then they would sell it in the parking lot where they worked. The police said that they had stolen about $30,000 worth of merchandise. Now, that was when a new Mustang was $2,300. All right, so $30,000 worth of, of um, water heaters. 
One day, Ron just didn't show up for work. I kind of went, wonder what's going on with Ron. Well, he was in the Orange County Jail. Now, I only know the rest of this story because my next-door neighbor came and told it to me. Pony Swenson, that's his name, Pony and Cecil, they lived next door. He was on the jail ministry team at our church. I was the youth pastor to his three junior high and high school boys. One Sunday afternoon, he walked next door to our house and asked me if I knew a fellow named Ron Catlin. I said, sure. He used to work with me nights at Sears in Buena Park. Pony said, well, I met him today at the jail, and he invited Jesus to be his Savior. He continued, Ron told me he knew this guy at work that tried to talk about Jesus during breaks, but Ron, only, but Ron said he only laughed inside because he didn't need religion. He and his friends were doing great until the police showed up. But being in jail opened his heart to Jesus. Just like these prisoners and this jailer in Acts 16. Just like it does to us when troubles strike us. So this jailer asked the right question. And he brought them out and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Well, I think the prisoners, the prisoners are still listening. And those who hadn't already given their miserable hearts and lives to the Savior, they might have opened their hearts right then and there. Because the second thing that we can learn about this earthquake is that the earthquake wasn't done to get the prisoners out of jail. It was done to let the Lord in, into the hearts of these prisoners. Verse 31, so they said, Paul and Silas say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. In verse 30, we learned that the jailer brought the prisoners out, not to set them free, but to check each prisoner for injuries, to ask Paul and Silas about their Lord. He wanted to know why did they stay? What had stopped everyone else from escaping? Paul and Silas are able to share Jesus with the jailer just as they had proclaimed God's grace all those hours before the earthquake. So let's read verse 31 again. So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus. That's all you have to do here this morning. If you haven't received Christ as your personal Savior, even though science is trying to promise you that you can live forever, oh, Jesus has made the way for you. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. The Pharisees said to Jesus, well, what must we do to do the works of God? And Jesus said, only believe in Him who God has sent, speaking of Himself. Right now in your heart, you can say, Jesus, I'm kind of miserable at times too. I struggle through things and I need your help. You can say, Jesus, please come into my heart. Be my Savior. Help me with the struggles that I have. That can be your prayer. That was how simple it was. 
believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, you and your household. Now, Sandy Adams, a, a Calvary Chapel pastor friend of ours, he says this, because I think this is important. He says, now some people draw the wrong conclusion from this verse. They teach a household salvation that if any man gets saved, then everyone under his authority is also saved. You can read it behind me. But they need to read verse 31 in context. For verse 32 follows. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And Sandy says, if the jailer's salvation included the rest of his family, then why did Paul make a house call and share the gospel with each family member? A father influences his family, but faith is always a personal decision. And just as we dedicated this baby this morning, the parents need to make their own decision to receive Christ. They need to raise the child to know about Jesus. And at some point in her life, she needs to make that commitment as well. Well, the jailer must have lived adjacent to the jail with his family there. In fact, some historians say that the jail is in the basement of the jailer's house. So verse 33, he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and, he and all his family were baptized. The jailer does what he should have done already. He had little personal concern for any of the prisoners' health or physical condition until now. I love this. His newfound faith is showing itself already in his humility and in his care for the bloody wounds of Paul and Silas. Verse 34. Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. See, it's not for his household, but with his household. They all had faith. Each of them was saved. And when it was day, the story continues, the magistrate sent the officers saying, let these men go. Paul and Silas are finally going to be treated fairly. We're not told why this came back up. We're not sure. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Now therefore depart and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they've beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now do they put us out secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and let us out. There had been no legal trial, and Paul refuses to depart secretly. He carries a Roman passport. He has the papers to prove his identity. I don't think we're talking about pride here. We're talking about justice and their witness. Paul's internal need for justice, we see it all the way through the book of Acts. It eventually takes him all the way to Rome and confinement in the palace where he sees members of the palace household and the palace guards, he sees them come to Christ. In fact, he tells these very same people in Philippi uh, in his letter to them, chapter 4, all the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. Well, that's written from the prison there in Rome. Paul also, Paul also wanted the Philippi community to 
recognize his innocence as a testimony to this church that he's going to leave behind. Verse 38. And the officers told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. Then they came out and pleaded with them and brought them out, cried, brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. So Paul agrees to leave town but not before he encourages the church. He needs to introduce the, the jailer and his family to Lydia and the slave girl. Verse 40, So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia, and when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. This chapter ends mentioning the brethren in the church at Philippi. A church started by the salvation of a well-to-do businesswoman, a slave girl healed from demon possession, and a rough-edged, hard-spoken local jailer. (laughs) What a motley crew. Uh, Kind of looking at a motley crew right now. Well, come to think about it, I think this is the type of people that made up all of the rallies when... uh, for the Billy Graham crusade, and maybe a church or two. And I truly believe that one way this church continued to grow was as each prisoner was finally released and he took his family to church. Now our church at Open Gate also thrives spiritually and will grow as we learn to live every day by the law of love. Tyler, come on up. The Lord was leading Paul and his band of brothers to serve him and evangelize the world. We need to be open to the leading of God's Spirit to serve him and love him right here where we live. When trouble struck Paul and Silas, it became an opportunity to worship and witness and wait for God's next steps. That's our model for us this morning. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your love. Thank you for this message that tells us how simple your grace is because you've done all the work in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. So Lord, we... We open our hearts to you now. We ask that you lead us, that you draw us to yourself, that you make us a church of love and acceptance, a church of safety and refuge, and that most of all, Lord, that you would show yourself to anyone here this morning that doesn't know you personally. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and worship with us as we sing one more song.